This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hey, it's Latif from Radiolab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. A new version of The Color Purple is in theaters now. It was released just at the end of the year, just in time for awards season. It's a story that's been told and retold over four decades since Alice Walker's best-selling novel was first published. The Color Purple is unique in the canon of Black female literature because of how many lives and shapes it has taken over the years. Doreen St. Felix is a critic for The New Yorker. Alice Walker's novel was first adapted Um, in the Steven Spielberg film, which I think we're all very familiar with, in part because there are these scenes that became so iconic. You told Hoppo to beat me. It was that mule, Pa. Old Joy. Old Joy the mule. I tell you, I was out there trying to plow that North Field, and the mule just went crazy. I think we live in an era of remake after remake after remake. I wasn't convinced that we needed necessarily to have a new envisioning of the story, which has been a novel, which has been a film, which has been a musical twice over. And all of the intellectual worries or anxieties that I had dissipated in the room because what the film created was a sense of fantasy, a sense of magical realist escape. I was very moved by the idea that a young Black male director and his young cast could decide to take this monolith, this cultural story that is absolutely, you know, it's an amber, and decide to change it, decide to make it reflect what they see to be the concerns of Black millennials of today. I think of The Color Purple, the musical you walk out of it feeling a lot lighter, almost as if you've just watched a fairy tale. And it's a very interesting choice. And I loved talking to Danielle about the reasons, the justifications with respect to choosing to tell the story on that register. Danielle, of course, is Danielle Brooks, who starred in both the 2015 stage version and in the new film. She plays the character of Sophia, who was first portrayed on screen by Oprah Winfrey. Doreen spoke with Danielle Brooks about acting in Winfrey's shadow and much more. I saw the movie maybe two months ago. Okay. And it was a really small screening. It was a bunch of journalists, and you know journalists don't like to be emotional when they watch a movie. Oh, really? <laughs> they like to be professional. But for me, it was a completely emotional experience. 
specifically because I kept thinking, I kept doing this like twinning mm. in my mind. Coleman Domingo playing Mr. You're thinking of Danny Glover mm -hmm. and you're thinking of him inheriting that. Mm. I'm watching you playing Sophie and I'm thinking of you inheriting That's Oprah. deep, yeah. Fantasia in inheriting Whoopi. Mm. This is also Fantasia's first feature film. Um, and that is what is so particular, I think, about the Black performer community is that it is small forcibly mm -hmm. for reasons that we all understand, but then it does create this like amazing, um, yeah, I don't know, inheritance is the word to use for it. I love that. There is this inheritance, this symmetry that happens. It's crazy, this lineage right. that you right. start to find yourself in. Mm -hmm. And I also have a meta full circle moment sitting here with you and talking because I saw you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, on Broadway, I went with my friend, and I had mostly known The Color Purple at that point as Alice Walker's text and then Steven Spielberg's film. And I think sometimes it can be hard to track what is adapted from what. Mm -hmm. So the musical is adapted from the film. And mm -hmm. so there's these layers of change and adaptation. And now having seen the film, I was wondering like, if you could speak to how this story maybe expands or contracts when mm -hmm. it's just having to be just on the stage oh, yeah. versus, you know, I think you guys shot down south. Yes, right? we shot in Georgia. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so what, what's your experience of having the location change and how That's it changes a great the story? question. It's night and day in a lot of ways. Um, yes, our adaptation, which was directed by John Doyle in 2015, it was stripped down. It was bare stage, just wood, as you saw, just chairs in our imagination. And the audience had to go on that ride with us in our imagination. But with film, being actually in Georgia, feeling the hot Georgian sun, right. being on plantations, seeing slave houses behind us, actually holding a 10-pound baby and having to be careful with that child... <laughs> It opens up the world. And now I felt like I was painting with an endless amount of colors. Um, I've enjoyed stepping into both, you know, exploring Sophia so deeply with eight shows a week for a full year of my life. <laughs> I know her very much inside and out. But there's so much more discovery now when you are, you have everything that you need. Right. I think of Color Purple as being the epic of our time, especially, you know, both you and I are black women. And my copy of Color Purple I got from my mother, yes. who then gave it to her, my sister, who's older than me, and then I read it. And I think what's interesting is as you age with the story, you maybe feel your identification shift. For sure. Because Celie is, you know, the heroine, and she's been described as beleaguered. She comes from an environment that's completely shaped by abuse. Mm -hmm. And then she's able to go through kind of like a feminist awakening. And I was wondering, what's your relationship with the character having grown, you oh, know, yeah. since being in the revival in the mid-2010s? to now being a mother, having yeah, been married. my life has changed a lot. Right. When I stepped into this role in 2015, I was 25. Right. And um, I was very single, <laughs> which I kind of <laughs> needed to be, like shooting oranges, new black, and doing color purple at the same time. Um, but the life experience was different. My confidence was different because I'm also still coming off of a lot of no's. And so I... It was 
it was very interesting playing Sophia because when I had become Tony nominated, I had imposter syndrome. Mm. And I immediately was like, I don't understand how I'm in this position. They're going to understand, like the audience is going to see me as a fraud. You know, how could this beautiful thing be happening to me? Which is super odd because I did do the work. It's so crazy how our brains work, you know? But it was singing Hell No every night that pulled me out of that fear. All my life I've had to fight. I had to fight my daddy, had to fight my brothers, my cousins, my uncles too. But I never, 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 never thought I'd have to fight in my own house. And what's Hell No about? Hell No for Sophia is about obviously saying hell no to the abuse, right? Saying hell no to gender norms and to the oppressor and really finding your power. And But for me every night, it was about saying hell no to my fears, saying hell no to this notion that I'm not enough, that I'm not worthy. That's what I was fighting, battling every day on that stage. And now, playing her, having become a mother of a beautiful four-year-old girl named Freya. She's the lock screen on your phone, right? She is the lock screen on my phone. Um, Yes, Uh, wearing purple. (laughs) And then becoming a wife now, learning what commitment means, which is so um, crucial to the story when it comes to Sophia and Arpo. And I just really love, like, when I think about her being so radical. Like, these are women that are coming straight off of slavery. Right. And for her to, you know, really try to break the cycles of abuse within her marriage. You know, this is a woman who had six children when kids were being killed, you know, thrown into the seas or snatched away from them, as we've seen with Celie's character. And so, yeah, there's pieces that I've definitely taken with me now playing Sophia. Right. I am interested in um, your relationship to your castmates. Mm -hmm. I was reading, I think... You, Fantasia, Barino, and other um, people were involved in a talk a couple of weeks ago. And during it, Fantasia, who also was in the musical, yes. described playing Celie as a cross. Mm-hmm. And it's been a cross that she hasn't always been able to carry. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about, I guess, like the psychological state of exactly what we were just talking about, bringing your life experience to bear on these characters mm-hmm. like what was the space like between each other given that pretty much everyone had either performed in the musical before or at least had a really deep emotional mm. relationship to the text like what was it like when you guys were filming spiritual mm. from day one the first day we shot the last scene which is us around the oak tree which we call the miss o miss oprah calls the angel oak tree but you can truly, I mean, we're in Savannah, Georgia. 
they are truly slave houses right next to us. You can see them. It's the most haunted city. It's so in haunted. I mean, I live there now, and I was born in Georgia, and I grew up in South Carolina, so I get it. You can't help but think about like the brothers and sisters that might have been lynched on those trees. You know, there's a spirit in Teraji said so beautifully, like when we were there. Like, do you feel that? Like, if the only that tree could talk, you know? So it really did start out very ancestral. Because what we know is that this thing that we're doing is so much bigger than ourselves. The healing that has taken place, not only within the cast, but also that permeates to the audience. I remember being in the theater And when we're singing the final number and we say, Amen. Amen. And audience members are holding each other's hand. They didn't even know each other. And they are grasping for each other's hand and crying because there's a healing that truly was happening and that is now taking place again i've known coleman for a long time (sighs) sorry i'm getting emotional because it's just so much to be grateful for being that today i can call myself a golden globe nominee and i think about the journey and running into coleman domingo on 42nd street and at the time i was having so many odd jobs trying to pay my rent and going up to him and him saying, after me expressing, you know, I hope there's a place for me in this industry. I really don't see it. Mm. And him encouraging me and saying, no, you got to keep going. I don't know you that well, but I can tell there's something in you. You have to continue to go. I'm just um, in awe of how these this journey with Color Purple has come so full circle for me. And after, you know, getting blessed with so many jobs that I've had, this is still in my 11 odd years of being in this industry, my first studio film. Mm-hmm. You just, it's a cutthroat business. That's one of the first things I learned was like, oh, this acting thing that I just deemed as like fun, play my therapy, my happy place, there's a business attached to it. And it's not always fair. And it's not always kind. And it's definitely not for the weak. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I've just gotten to this point in my career when I've wanted to give up and throw in the towel, um, I'm grateful for my journey. I'm sorry, I'm crying. (laughs) You're making me cry. Um, did you, did the, you or the cast members develop relationships with, um, performers who had done the roles before, whether it's in the film or in the musical? Yeah, I definitely formed a bond with Miss Oprah Winfrey. Once she called me on that Zoom to personally pass the baton. I am here representing all things purple to tell you that you are our (laughs) Sophia Sophia. (laughs) And a lot of people are like, how do you have any pressure? You played her for a year. 
I mean, Miss Oprah was there almost every day, you know, on set. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> watching the most iconic scenes. But huge shoes to fill. But I feel like she really allowed me to be the cobbler of my own shoe. Right. She still held my hand through the journey because Sophia, as we know, as you said, is not an easy character to play. So there were moments where, you know, you have to shoot things over and over and over again. And you think that you've like shed the, that scene, like you're done with that scene. And then they come back two days later and they're like, we want you to shoot it again. And this is the dinner scene. And what was the dinner scene? The dinner scene um, was the pretty much is almost like the 11 o'clock number. It's the final, you know, big hoopla, like everyone is coming into their own. At this moment in Sophia's life, she, her spirit is pretty much dying. It is, is she's a shell. Because she's just been in jail for many mm-hmm. years because she refused to work for Miss Millie and talked back. That's right. Right. So... The world has now killed her song, killed her spirit, Mm -hmm. taken her song and killed her spirit. And she finds that strength again in that moment. Um, When Celie stands up for herself, she begins to find her strength again. That's Danielle Brooks, who's in the new film of The Color Purple. She's speaking with Doreen Sanfrelix, and she'll continue the conversation in just a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. We'll continue now with the conversation between Doreen Sanfrelix, a writer on culture for The New Yorker, and the actress Danielle Brooks. Brooks cut her teeth on the show Orange is the New Black. 
And she went on to have a key role in The Color Purple. She played Sophia in a 2015 stage revival of the musical, and she plays the character again in the new film version, directed by Blitz Bazawule. This new version is pretty different from its predecessors in some very interesting ways. Doreen says it reflects the concerns of its millennial director and cast, and it's got a feeling of magical realism. The pain and the trauma are still there, but it's undergirded this time around by a sense of joy. So here's Doreen speaking with Danielle Brooks. In this film, we get more of Harpo's development as a character, and it does feel like it's addressing questions of masculinity that, frankly, aren't really addressed in even the book and the film adaptation. 100%. The fact that this was directed by a Black man has opened up Mm. parts of this story that we didn't even know existed because how would we, you know? Um, the perspective of Steven Spielberg is much different from our director, Blitz Bazawule. There's so many moments, like what we're now discovering, like with with Corey playing Harpo, like how that box was open, you know, and we're brought into his world and, and we're seeing who he truly is and what he's fighting against and the relationship between his father and him and him trying to fight against what he's being taught and how, you know, Mr. can't fight against what he's being taught by his father. Mm-hmm. We get this generational lineage of trauma that we didn't see before. And that was built out of conversations had with Blitz in the rehearsal process. I love one thing that Blitz did. And at first I was like, what is he doing? But there's a famous line where Suge comes in for the first time to Mr. and Celie's house. And she sees Celie and she says, you show is ugly. You show is ugly. (laughs) And at first I was like, that is an iconic line. How are you going to get rid of that? And then I realized after hearing Blitz talk about the reasoning, here we go again, if he would have kept it in perpetuating this thing where black women put other black women down. Mm -hmm. She's been put down enough. Is it really necessary in this rendition to continually have that happen, have a black woman speaking ill of another black woman? So I, I really just appreciated that, that just thoughtfulness of what are, what are we saying to this next generation? So I just loved that we, as a collective, were very conscious of the storytelling. I'm beautiful. Yes, I'm beautiful. The truth of the matter is that the original Color Purple is an imperfect book. That's what makes it so alive as an organism, because other authors are able to come in and draw aspects from the book out more into the forefront, and then also choose to shuttle away certain other things. And I think the way the relationship between Celie and Shug Avery, who is, you know, She's the vision of glamour. She comes to see Mr. They have this off and on relationship. She's a jazz singer. So she kind of represents like 
black culture. Mm-hmm. She's a symbol of black culture in the early um, 20th century. And before, you always think of Suge as like completely dominating Seely. And their erotic moment yeah. is not one that's necessarily based in love. Mm. It's based in like curiosity and mm. other things. But in the film, the moment is unlike anything I've ever seen mm. before because it uh, creates a kind of montage mm-hmm. where um, their song together, Fantasia and Taraji, puts them into the world of like entertainment. They're dancing together, they're imagining being on the same level field mm-hmm. where Seely is as glamorous. And that was something I really appreciated when you think about the fact that people tend to forget that The Color Purple is a queer story. Mm-hmm. I love that we <laughs> right? went there. Yeah. I love that we went there. Even though everyone should see this, even though everyone will connect to it, this moment for the Black community to get to see two Black women loving on each other is so crucial. Mm-hmm. A lot of it comes from generational uh, behaviors of self-hate, but also um, homosexuality being deemed as horrible, which I do not believe personally at all. But I feel like because people, the aunties, the uncles, Mm -hmm. the great-grandmothers love this story so much, this is an opportunity for them to look at things a little different um, really understand what love is about. And I think that's what you get with Celie and Suge. It's not the sexual portion of it. It's about the love, mm-hmm. teaching each other how to love each other, how to love themselves. Blitz did not shy away from that. They did kiss for way longer in our version than the last, you know. But as you see, like when they did the version in 1985, how much pushback they got from different organizations like NAACP. And it's like, look how far we've come. Absolutely. Thank God we are moving in a better direction. Mm -hmm. I just, so I just love that element in our story. Thank you so much, Danielle, for spending time with me today. Thank you. I loved speaking with you. The New Yorker's Doreen St. Felix speaking with Danielle Brooks. Brooks plays Sophia in The Color Purple, which is in theaters now. And you can always read Doreen San Felix at NewYorker.com. Dancing the Tango. Priscilla Presley and her partner Louis Van Amstel. All right, so what happens on the show is that half the dancers, one in each couple, is a professional ballroom dancer. These people are champs. And each one of those ballroom dancers is paired with a so-called star. Well, that is the throaty, inimitable voice of Joan Akachala. 
the New Yorker's longtime dance critic. There was nobody better on ballet and modern dance, the classics, but Joan was perfectly happy to analyze Dancing with the Stars, too, and she was great on gossip. She was the higher version of TMZ. Although the show makes a sort of pretense of exploding sexual stereotypes, mm-hmm. so the women talk about how tough they are and what competitors they are, and the men go through the homosexual anxiety business mm-hmm. where they wonder whether dancing is going to, you know, uh, challenge their status as Be heterosexuals. Too for them or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the stereotypes are very much in force. I mean, with I loved Joan Akachella's voice. She would always begin her notes with a throaty, dearest, and then have at it. Hilarious, brilliant, discursive. Or you'd call her and wait out 14 rings and get her answering machine. She loved to screen her calls, but then she would panic and pick up the receiver and scream, yes! And the conversation would begin. And her voice on the page, her voice in her essays was unbelievably vivid. I sometimes thought she wrote like a combination of Virginia Woolf and an old-fashioned sports writer, as if she were watching her 200th performance of George Balanchine's Jewels with all of ballet history in her head while joyfully puffing on a stogie in the corner of her mouth. Joan could be tough. She could be disapproving. She was no patsy for the dull or the aggressively earnest. But as a critic, Joan Acachella was a lover above all. Her passion for Balanchine left you passionate for Balanchine. Not because she was dictatorial in her judgments, a bossy critic, but because she was so winning and so convincing. And so thanks to her attention to something of enormous value, you took notice too. You followed in the wake of her sensibility, and your life had changed a little. And so how do you thank someone enough for that? Joan Acachella died a week ago. And I'll tell you what time well spent is. Time well spent is reading Joan Acachella's work, any of Joan's work, and you can find a hell of a lot of it at newyorker.com. Everybody here is grateful for that. I'm David Remnick. That's our program for today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell, with guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.